Department of Archives and History for the special exhibit Spirits of the Passage, the story of the transatlantic slave trade, open now through August 11th. Details at twomississippimuseums.com slash spirits. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, February 7th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, President Trump says he wants to eliminate HIV and AIDS in America. We'll ask a Mississippi doctor if that's even possible. And a Mississippi woman shares her initial reaction to the man who gave her HIV. My feelings at that time was murder. I really wanted to kill him. I mean, really, honestly speaking, I hated him. I hated myself for not knowing that, you know, this man had been sleeping with another man, you know. Then supporters call them scholarship accounts. Detractors call them vouchers. Find out why the legislature could expand a controversial special needs education program. Plus, look at who's being honored at today's Governor's Arts Awards. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The rate of HIV and AIDS infections in Mississippi is among the highest in the nation. This week, President Donald Trump used his State of the Union address to say he wants to eliminate the disease in the United States. But is that even possible? Joining us to shed more light on how Mississippi compares to the rest of America in HIV and AIDS cases is Dr. James Brock with the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Dr. Brock tells MPB's Jasmine Ellis the state has a long way to go. As of statistics from 2016, we are number 11th in the nation for new diagnoses, meaning people who have been diagnosed with HIV in in that year. Um, that is adjusted per population, so that's um, per, per 100,000 population. Where we shine is in late diagnoses, meaning people that aren't diagnosed with HIV until they already have um, a weakened immune system, and we are sixth in the nation for that. And then uh, our age-adjusted mortality is among the highest in the nation as well. In the state, we are seventh in the nation for age-adjusted HIV related mortality. What treatments are available for people um, who are affected? Um, For people who are HIV positive, uh, combination antiretroviral therapy has been um, a cornerstone of HIV treatment since 1996, and therapies have continued to improve. They've become increasingly more convenient. The side effect profiles uh, are continuing to improve, and now Most patients with HIV infection can take a one pill a day regimen uh, for HIV infection. They are highly effective and very well tolerated. What would you say to someone who is um, nervous about getting tested um, or nervous about um, coming to a doctor and um, because maybe they're having trouble dealing with their diagnosis or they're dealing with um, reactions from family members and friends that might not be supportive. Um, what What is some advice for them? Knowledge is power. They estimate that about one in seven people in the United States do not currently know that they have HIV infection. Um, so if uh, one is diagnosed early, then you can do something about it and get started on antiretroviral therapy and never get sick from HIV as long as, as, long as the HIV-positive person stays on treatment. Um, 
For those that are high risk and HIV negative, that's also very important to know because there are some very effective HIV prevention treatments out there. Uh, it's known as pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP, and that's a one pill a day regimen that is um, extremely effective, virtually 100% effective at preventing um, HIV infection for those that are negative and high risk. How affordable are these treatments? Are they expensive or? They are. Um, the medications retail would amount to about $3,500 a month for most of these single tablet regimens. However, insurance covers the cost of the medications. Uh, for those that are uninsured and have a financial need, the federal Ryan White program will cover both the medical care and the medicines for anyone in the United States and its affiliated territories. And then as far as PrEP coverage goes, um, PrEP should be covered by all insurers. For those that are um, bleep below age 40 and are uninsured, there is a program called the Medicaid Family Planning Waiver that provides limited Medicaid for family planning services, and that actually includes PrEP care. So for, uh, for those that are HIV negative, access to PrEP uh, should be available for even those that are uninsured if they're below a certain age cutoff. I wanted to ask you because um, did you watch the State of the Union address at all? Uh, President Trump mentioned that um, within the next 10 years, he would like to see HIV and AIDS like um, eradicated within the United States. And I want to know, is that is that a possible thing? Ending the HIV uh, epidemic is completely doable in the um, 21st century. We have the tools that we need to be able to end the epidemic. Rolling it out is a lot more challenging, but the cornerstones of ending the epidemic include screening those that, uh, screening everybody. So uh, the, the CDC and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommend universal HIV screening for everyone age 16 to 65. UMMC's Dr. James Brock. Jacqueline Wilson has been living with HIV since her diagnosis in 2006. She talks with our Jasmine Ellis about her experiences since then, her feelings toward the man who infected her, and the reactions of her family and friends. It took me about about a year and a half to really just come to terms with the fact that I was going to have to live with this for the rest of my life. But um, I contracted it from somebody that I was in a relationship with. And I thought that, you know, he was, that I was the only one that, that he was sleeping with. And to find out that he was sleeping with a man, which was also my first cousin. And um, like I said, I didn't, I didn't find out until 2006. And I found out in prison. I was sentenced to eight years in prison for sales of drugs or cocaine or whatever you want to call it. But anyway... I um I found out two weeks after I got to prison that um I had contracted HIV and I called him and told him and he told me that he already knew that he had it. He just didn't know how to tell me that he had it. I learned to just really depend on God for a lot of my strength so that I could get through the fact that, you know, this is something that I'm going to have to live with for the rest of my life. I'm going to have to take some type of medication for the rest of my life unless, you know, there's a cure and I'm able to afford it. What was your reaction when you found out that the person you were in a relationship with, that all this had happened and that you contracted um, the disease from the person you were in a relationship with? What What was your reaction to that, especially since you just said, he had um, relations with a family member of yours, correct? Yeah, and my family member was a man. I mean, is a man, rather. 
So I didn't know that he was on the down low, you know, as you call it or whatever. And my reaction to that, when I first found out, I was I was numb because I thought that there was, you know, that they were making a mistake. It was a guy from the health department that came. He told me that he would come back in two more weeks and test me again. And he did. And it was still, you know, I was still HIV positive or whatever. But he told me that the person that I gave him was already in their system. So that alone really just tore at my heart because I'm like, how could you do this to me? And, you know, I was in love with you. I did everything that I could to make things work between us. And this is the repayment that I got. So my feelings at that time was murder. I really wanted to kill him. I mean, really, honestly speaking, I hated him. I hated myself for not knowing that, you know, this man had been sleeping with another man. You know, it was shocking really shocking and hurtful. How did you tell your family members and your friends about it? What were their responses? Actually, I had a first cousin and she and I were the best of friends before I went in to serve my time. And she was the first somebody that I actually reached out to. And the response that I got from her was that I was to never set foot in her house again because I could have infected her and her daughter, and I must have had mush for for brains because I didn't see the signs that he was on the down low. And after that, you know, I didn't reach out to anyone else until I felt comfortable with myself and knowing that even if I am rejected, I can still handle it. So, you know, I waited a couple of years to tell my children, and they are very, very supportive. My 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 brother my uncles, you know, because I, my mom was the, was the only girl. So I only had all uncles for family members and they were very, very supportive. Um, they were hurt, you know, um, a couple of my uncles were angry and, you know, they wanted me to pursue charges and I did. And he, he's now serving time, which he's been there for over 10 years now because of that. But my family were very supportive. Jacqueline Wilson with MPB's Jasmine Ellis. Coming up, supporters call them scholarship accounts. Detractors call them vouchers. Find out why the legislature could expand a controversial special needs education program. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If your car won't start, how do you know if it's the battery? If it's the starter? If it's the alternator? What is an alternator anyway? I don't know. But AutoCorrect's guest mechanic does, Charlie Mountain from Clinton High School's Career Complex. Join us today at 10 a.m. for AutoCorrect on MPB Think Radio and on the Internet at mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Advocates for school choice and supporters of traditional public schools are still at odds over expanding the state's education scholarship accounts program. For approved students with special needs, the accounts take thousands of dollars out of the student's existing school system and put it in the hands of parents to use for additional instruction or private school. Advocates like Grant Callen of Empower Mississippi like the program and say it should be expanded. Callen talks with MPB's Desiree Frazier. The current 
special needs education scholarship account program passed in 2015. It is serving uh, almost a, almost 500 students really well. And the peer committee did a report earlier this year that found of the parents that are in the program, 91% are satisfied. So it's parents love the program, but the way it was funded has created this hundreds of students trapped in a waiting list. So we'd love to see the legislature ensure that the families on that waiting list get in it. And so there's a couple of bills that would do that, and we're hopeful that the legislature will ex- uh, pass those bills to help make sure more kids get in the program that need it. Are you concerned at all about taking more money from public education to do this? Well, this program doesn't take money from public education. It simply allows students the choice of public or private or to use those funds for tutoring or therapy if if the child has special needs and their needs are not being met. So it doesn't impact public school district money. They would, they would have the same amount of money. The only impact on a district would be the same impact if a student left the district for any reason. There has been the argument that all the money that has been already designated hasn't been used yeah. because it wasn't accepted by schools, so forth and so on. So one of the other things that came out of the peer committee report was that there were some real problems in the way the program was administered. And so some of that was money that could have been used for scholarships were returned to the legislature instead of going to parents. And so there's some fixes in this bill that would make sure scholarship monies get actually to the students who need them. And so we, we support that. We think that the goal of this program was to help students. Let's make sure they get the money they need so that parents have the freedom to find the right setting for their child. Because... You know, students with special needs sometimes need a little something different, whether it's dyslexia therapy or extra services or tutoring after class. Sometimes public schools do a great job with students with special needs, and sometimes they don't. And we just want parents to be able to have that option if they feel like their child is falling behind in a traditional public school. There was also the issue of accountability and tracking those funds. So this is the, the, the lack of bureaucratic... Uh, handcuffs on this program really is not a bug. That's kind of a feature of the program. There, there is no more, I mean, let me say it this way. There's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of oversight and a lot of protections in the law for special education within traditional public schools. And that ha- a lot of kids are still falling through the cracks and a lot of kids are not being served. So this doesn't change any of that. If parents want to work with the traditional public school system, which has all that oversight and accountability and bureaucracy, they still have that option. This simply says if parents are pulling their hair out because they know their child is not being served and the promises that have been made to their child are not being delivered on, they have another option. And this option is intentionally light on the accountability and the oversight because we want parents to have the freedom to shop around to find the best setting. Sometimes that's traditional public school. Sometimes that's something else. So we want to make sure parents have the freedom to do that. Grant Callen of Empower Mississippi with our Desiree Frazier. Nancy Loom is with the pro-public schools organization, The Parents Campaign. Loom says the accounts are the same as vouchers. She says the program doesn't work, that money is left on the table, and that public schools are being hurt. She outlines her position to MPB's Ashley Norwood. The way that we use public funds, what's an appropriate use of taxpayer dollars? So we pay taxes to benefit the public good. Uh, For example, public safety. We don't provide you 
your own choice of a personal security system for your home. We provide public safety that benefits the whole community. Roads are the same way. We're, we're not going to pave your driveway or a private road. We're going to provide roads that benefit everyone. And schools are the same way. We provide public schools where every child has a place. All children have access to public schools. It's not appropriate for us to fund private schools that say, you can come, but they don't want me or my child, and so my child is excluded. So now let's talk about this particular law. So proponents of this law say that it's needed because um, they, they want to provide special uh, education services for children. They say that the public schools are not doing a good job of providing these services and class sizes are too big and there aren't enough dyslexia therapists and so parents should be able to choose their schools and take these funds to private schools. But let's look at what the law actually says. What the law says, it does not say that parents get to choose. It says that the private schools get to choose the students that they want with our tax dollars. It also says that they do not have to provide any special education services at all. Um, it does not say that parents get to choose, and in fact, it says that in order to qualify for the voucher, the parent has to forfeit the child's right to special education services, the rights that, that's provided in federal law. What's the resolve? We know that public education it, it has its, its challenges, as any educational system. Um, and then given the charter school system and private schools, some of them aren't meeting the needs of a lot of families. What do you think the resolve is to is better prepare young people for the world? No, no system is, is perfect. No school is perfect. No private school is perfect. No public school is, is perfect. What we need to continue to focus on is making our public schools that are open to all children the very best that they can be. And part of that is making sure that they have the resources they need to hire enough teachers so that class sizes can be small, to hire enough dyslexia therapists, to uh, provide enough classroom materials so that teachers are not paying for those things out of their own pockets to pay teachers well enough so that we can attract more people into teacher education and we don't have this terrible teacher shortage that we're in the middle of. Legislators often want to say money's not the answer. Well, money in and of itself is not the answer, but every single thing that I know of that is a part of the answer costs money. Nancy Loom of the Parents Campaign with our Ashley Norwood. Coming up, a look at who's being honored at today's Governor's Arts Awards. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For moments in black history, we salute Fannie Lou Hamer. The civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer is known for her words, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, during her testimony at the 1964 Democratic National Convention. But the Mississippi native would also lend her voice to many freedom songs during the civil rights movement. Fannie Lou Hamer was a true champion of the people, and we salute her leadership. This has been MPB's Moment in Black History. Bright 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Seven Mississippians are being honored today for their contributions to the state's much-celebrated artistic culture. They will receive Governor's Arts Awards at a ceremony tonight. The list ranges from technological powerhouse Hartley Peavy and his wife Mary to the late James Patterson for his excellent photography. Julia Reed is an author and columnist originally from the Mississippi Delta. She's being honored today. In a recent conversation, she talked with us about her writing process. I broke my elbow a couple of years ago crossing the street in New Orleans, which is a dangerous thing. I mean, you could get shot or you could fall in the pothole. Which <laughs> and um, I couldn't type. I mean, I was in this ridiculous cast, and so I couldn't type. And everybody's like, oh, don't worry about it. There's all these apps for that. Well, I mean, Siri can't even understand me on my phone, so I was a little, I wasn't very hopeful. And sure enough, None of the apps, the dictation apps, understood a single word I said except for the profanity which would come out of my mouth after they screwed up all my sentences, and then I'd have to erase that. So it was not a good system. But it was funny because people have always told me kind of what you did, and I take it as a high compliment, like, you know, you, just, you write just like you talk. But, I mean, I think what you realize that what people call a voice with a writer is kind of a slightly more fine-tuned, heightened version of that person's voice. If I have a thought and I'm in the car and I'm, you know, I know I'm working on something and I think I better dictate this before it runs out of my brain, pan, I will turn on my phone and like dictate the line. And it's never as punchy as when I type it. There's something about the alchemy of your fingers hitting the keyboard or before that your pen to paper. It took me a long time to be able to sort of achieve the same raw or natural voice on a keyboard. I used to write stuff out in longhand and, and then retype it. I mean, I joke about it, but it's not it's not really a joke. I've written some of my best stuff on the back of vomit bags on airplanes because, <laughs> well, because you can listen to your own voice. You know, it's one of the few places that you can't have a cell phone. And I try to look like Clint Eastwood when people start talking to me next, next to me. And so you really have some quiet time and you're suspended in midair and it's kind of a good time to listen to the sound of your own head. And so all of a sudden, stuff comes really clearly into your brain pan, and you've got to scribble it down, and there, there you go. You've got this vomit bag all white and pristine in front of you. And sometimes I do run in the house if I've had a thought and, and type it down. Author Julia Reed is among seven honorees at today's Governor's Arts Awards. The ceremony is tonight at 6 at the Old Capitol Museum in Jackson. Also being recognized is the group you hear playing in the background, gospel music legends, the Canton Spirituals. To see the full list of honorees, visit the Mississippi Arts Commission website at arts.ms.gov. If you can't make it to the ceremony, the Governor's Arts Awards will air on MPB TV and Think Radio next Friday, February 15th. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10 o'clock, it's Auto Correct. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online by visiting mpbonline.org. You can also download the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. Or you can subscribe to Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.
Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Department of Archives and History for the special exhibit Spirits of the Passage, the story of the transatlantic slave trade, open now through August 11th. Details at twomississippimuseums.com slash spirits. Behind every great cloud is a whole bunch of expensive computers. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech, demystifying the digital economy. I'm Molly Wood. Marketplace Tech is supported by LifeRay, makers of a flexible open-source software platform for building portals, intranets, websites, and connected digital experiences. Learn more at LifeRay.com. And by Baird, celebrating 100 years of financial partnerships with individuals, businesses, communities, and institutions. More information is available at Baird100.com. As we saw in tech earnings over the last couple weeks, tech giants are making a lot of money off cloud computing. Amazon, Google, and Microsoft rent computer storage and power to smaller companies for lots of profit. But they spend a lot of money on this business, too, because cloud is kind of a misleading, fluffy little name. It's really a 